You're listening to TemperCap Growth Stories, a Maledra Digital production. To find out more about TemperCap, visit tempercap.com. Welcome to TemperCap Growth Stories. My name is Matt Knowles. I'm an operating partner here at TemperCap. Today, we have a fantastic interview lined up to kickstart the series with Mike Toucan, the CEO of Onfido, a global leader in digital identity verification. Now, in introducing Mike to you, I'd like to flag that Mike is a rare breed. You don't meet many of these out in the wild. He is a serial CEO. And I've been a CEO and I know how exhausting it is. So I am really intrigued to get to know Mike better. Mike is not only a free-time CEO, underneath that is also led across a number of different sectors and across a number of different stages. And today, Mike will be sharing the inside story of his own, as well as on Fido's growth, the lessons he's learnt along the way, and I hope also giving us his thoughts about the future for Onfido and technology more broadly in these turbulent times. So, thanks Mike for being here today, and really looking forward to discussing with you uh, your own personal career journey. So, can I start there? Could you give me what you think are the most important experiences that shaped you as a leader and got you ready for today leading on Fido in this next stage? You know, one of the most important experiences happened to me while I was still in college. And I was on the rowing team. And rowing is a fabulous sport for teaching you about what matters in business. Which sounds crazy, but here's why. Um, rowing has two absolutely vital and incredibly transferable attributes. Number one, you train for several hours, about three hours. For every minute of racing, you train for about three hours. Yeah. So there's an amazing amount of planning and preparation and just resilience and grit that you have to have. Yeah. Absolutely vital. All that, man, you couldn't think of a better training ground for yeah. you know, future leaders. But the other one is rowing's a team sport. The whole boat's going to either win or lose together. And there's no amount of you know, kicking the locker and woulda, coulda, shoulda and all the other kind yeah. of BS. You're either going to work with your team and make your team better and win together and celebrate together and support yeah. each other or you're not going to. Yeah. And that is so clear and binary. And a lot of times it gets lost in business, right? You, you, know, you don't get that level of clarity and that really just super strong team focus. And so for me, you know, that was such a foundational experience, something I brought into every one of my companies. Yeah. Brilliant. I wasn't expecting that, but what a lovely analogy. Do you still row? I don't. No, okay. I, my, my, my knees, I've had four knee operations, okay. so I sadly leave that behind. Now, for those um, watching who do not know the Onfido backstory, could you just give us a little bit of background to Onfido, how it grew, how Hussein, your predecessor, and the other founders, um, Eamon and Bahul. So talk a little bit about the business that you inherited. Yeah, so the three co-founders did a fantastic job building an incredible company in a really fascinating space. Starting from nothing, they'd, they'd um, met each other in Oxford, yeah, and they'd each gone off to different banks. But um, Hussein had a personal experience that made him realize that there was an unsolved problem here that, that needed to get solved, and he get solved better than anyone else was doing. His personal experience was um, his folks moved here from Iran, and um, they uh, they weren't able to um, because they were a so-called thin file. They weren't in any yeah. identity yeah. database at the yeah. time. They weren't able to get a bank account. They weren't able to get a, a, an apartment. And so he looked at that and said, why is it that we have these gatekeepers yeah. that you know, prevent people like us from having access? And so shouldn't everyone have access you know, to all of the new economy? And as the economy's moving digital, become especially important. So how can the, the new digital world, how can we create an open access where your identity can allow you to take advantage of all the services? Yeah. So that was the founding vision. That still is the vision that we have today. And on the back of that, they built a great team, took the business up to 60 million US in revenue, um, and you know, really positioning incredibly well for the next several years. That was uh, 18 yeah. months ago. There was, there was a lovely quote um, in TechCrunch where Hussein said that, where you know, he, he took the business from zero to one, and now Mike's going to take it to one to a hundred. But the zero to one's hard. It's incredibly it's hard. hard. It's incredibly hard. And as, as you know, from your portfolio and looking around other venture companies, the vast majority of companies never make it from zero to one. 
And he did, by the way, he's, he's being very modest. Zero to one to me is getting the initial product market fit and getting something to work. They did that. Which is tough. Which is incredibly tough. Vast majority of companies fail right there. The next place where you have a whole lot of failure is now starting to get to repeatability from a sales perspective and starting to get the initial sales. And that typically gets you to 10, 20 million US in revenue. Yeah. And then, so, and then there's the initial yeah. growth ramp. Um, yeah. And so he had done the first two and a half stages before yeah. you know, handing it over. So he did much more than zero to one, just to be super clear. I completely agree. I completely agree. But that, that job of product market fit and then creating the repeatability, it's a really hard journey. I've been there. And actually, each stage is different. Each stage asks different questions, yes. actually, of leaders. And, and one of the reasons why you oftentimes see new CEOs coming in is that there aren't that many people that can span stages like that. Yeah. Right? And the, if you look at the skill set, what does it take to go from zero to one? Well, you have to be super, super inspirational because you have to get people to believe the vision that you have when there's no proof out there. And as a matter of fact, any rational person would look at it and say, no way, right? You, you're a founder. I was a founder. I, I was a much less successful founder than Hussein was. Yeah. But you have to be able to rally people behind the vision uh, and then, you know, keep being creative and trying new stuff out and pivoting because the, almost undoubtedly the initial thing that you try isn't going to work. Yeah. So you have to realize when it's, when it's not working, try something else, try something else, and just be relentless while maintaining belief. It's, it's, a, it's a strange period. It's a strange, it's a strange period. period. And it really requires a yeah. unique you know, leader and capability to do that. Yeah. Once you get to there, the next phase, uh, and you know, so the, that's solving product market fit. So you also need deep technical experience and so on. The next phase is much more of a go-to-market phase, yeah. right? Figuring out, well, okay, so now we've sold the first 10 customers. Yeah. How do we sell, take from 10 to 100? Yeah. And it's kind of industrializing it as well. It's, exactly. You know, someone explained to me, it's kind of like moving from firing bullets to firing cannonballs. Yes. Where you're, you're now hitting the target and now we need to get the howitzer out. Yeah. And it's a different phase and it requires a different different leadership as well as different skill sets within the business and different people within the team. Exactly. And nice, good to create it. Um, uh, good to analogy, create. by the way. <laughs> um, but, and then the next stage beyond that is, is much more of an optimization and fine tuning yeah. and now yeah. going international and so on. So, but each of those, you know, in many cases, companies make a, a change at each of those stages because there are, are just different skill sets. So I'd say, you know, Hussein took it for two and a half stages, which is very impressive. I think he was being very modest. Yeah. I agree. So you took over as CEO uh, right at the end of 2020, right in the heart of the pandemic. What have been the biggest developments during the tenure? Um, a whole bunch of things. Um, so we, um, we've really completely transformed the product capabilities um, and really taken it from where we were to clear market-leading performance. We just released a... Um, a new release. Uh, we launched it about a couple of weeks ago in New York, uh, and we're launching it this week, actually, yeah. in Amsterdam as well. And that takes us from a single product company to a platform company. And that is a, you know, a transformation that almost every company goes through at some point as they scale up. Because the, there, there's so many compelling reasons for doing that. The first one is that as a single product company, you usually aren't that important to most of your customers. You're one part of a much bigger problem they're trying to solve. So the, the, as you start becoming a platform problem, you're solving a bigger, more strategic problem for them. That makes you stickier. That makes you more strategic. Um, from an economical per, economics perspective, um, it typically is five times harder, literally, and more expensive to break into a new account than it is to cross-sell or upsell them it's just, uh, once you've already built that relationship. Yeah. You're now someone that they trust. You've already built something that they're using. You now have something that plugs in seamlessly next to that. Why wouldn't they take advantage of that? So it's a much easier conversation. So that, that improves your sales and marketing economics. Uh, and so for, there's so many different compelling reasons to do so, it. So is this a way to think of it? Is this about solving problems in the next pieces on the chessboard for the customer? Or is it about more completely solving the problem you were solving before? It, uh, yes and yes, and it, it depends on, on where you are. So what we did ourselves was created a, um, a three horizon strategy. This is, McKinsey had a framework on this many years ago, and people have used versions of this. Horizon one is, what's the, the market that you started in? Yeah. And so we had a horizon one strategy, which is completely 
rebuilding and up-leveling that whole product. Um, the next horizon too was solving for the problem that we were sitting in the middle of. So, you know, we were solving ID verification, but that sits in the middle of the onboarding problem. Yeah. Right? Customers use 20 or 30 vendors to solve the onboarding yeah. problem. And there's a completely hear that from a lot of companies that I work with. The huge challenge of multiple vendors just for onboarding. Oh. Never mind the ongoing transaction monitoring. And it's a complete hairball, right? Trying to manage yeah. that mess is something that no customer wants to do. And so by now solving for creating an onboarding platform, we can say, we can take that whole thing, yeah. right? And give it to a much more seamless way, much more configurable and so on. So that solves that problem. Now, Horizon 3 is a much more um, ambitious sort of market expansion move to say, now let's solve for more of the identity lifecycle. Onboarding is the very beginning of the identity lifecycle. There's Correct. a whole lot of other things that happen yeah. over the course of their customer journey. So let's help them solve for that. So what, what would they be? So it's obviously the onboarding is the thing we all think about, but is, is it things like re-authentication? Uh -huh. Uh, I'm struggling here. Password changes. Is, is that the life cycle? Is that yeah. the end to end? Those are absolute pieces of the life cycle. I mean, there's a whole lot of pieces in there. But so the first part of that that we brought out was um, we call it face off. Yeah. And the idea is that you can, once you've, we've onboarded you, we, we've, as part of that, we compared, we figured out that you're a real human being, uh, that you're present right then, and that you are the same person in whatever identity document you showed us. Yeah. Well, as part of that, we obviously you know, got a real good view of your biometrics. So now we can use those for you to log in again. Seamlessly, you don't have to re-register so, anything like so that. So this will work for things like strong customer re-authentication, which are yeah. new laws in Europe that are coming out for financial services businesses. Yes, if you need to do a step-up level of auth, if they're changing their PII, like for a lot of, a lot of companies, um, banks will use uh, a cell phone for a one-time push to say, you know, is this yeah. the right person? Well, what if someone wants to change their cell phone number? Yeah. That's a pretty high-risk yeah. thing, given how the importance that we attach yeah. to that. So that might be a time you want to re-authenticate and say, hey, is that actually a real person there? And it's the same person that we onboarded as this person, because we can do that seamlessly. So, so those are examples. So of, it genuinely is solving the original problem more completely, as well as solving ancillary problems. I get the answer. I get the yes and the yes now completely. Yes. It just depends on what horizon you're thinking about. Yeah. I love that story, but can we just also get some of the work experiences as well that you've had that led you to this point? Yeah, no, totally. Um, so my background is uh, I went to school as an engineer yeah. and worked as an engineer. Um, went to um, got a master's actually in electrical engineering and worked designing computer chips for a few years uh, and then stunned all my coworkers, went back to business school, got my lobotomy. And um, <laughs> then um, I, at the advice of some of the best career advice I've ever had uh, from someone I used to work for at, at Sun when I was a chip engineer. Um, uh, he's, you know, he said, Mike, look, you're talking about starting a company or going into a, an early stage startup. I'd suggest what you do first is actually uh, work in a company that's actually good at what you want to learn because you're trying to switch careers from being a techie engineer mm -hmm. to being a business and marketing person and ultimately running companies. Yeah. And so go to somewhere that's good at this business marketing stuff that you say you want to do. And that was kind of a, 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 an approach I'd never thought of before. And so um, that ended up me going to Microsoft for four and a half years, learning how Microsoft built products back in the day, how um, I could scale it out, become a manager and start to scale up as a manager. That led me to um, doing a startup, founding a company with a few of my coworkers at Microsoft, which again, learned a ton. We were completely unsuccessful. So I, you know, I have huge respect for how hard that journey is and what it takes to create a successful startup, having done it and, and not been successful. Um, and then I, I went and ran a division for Polycom, which gave me a much more cross-functional GM experience. Uh, got lured back into Microsoft to get a much deeper dive on sales and marketing, running the, um, the marketing team for SQL Server. Yeah. Uh, it was a billion and a half dollar yeah, business that we took for two and a half. Yeah. yeah. And so, and the fourth biggest business at Microsoft. So yeah. fantastic foundational experience for me. And on the back of all that, that led to my first CEO opportunity uh, in Boston, a, a company called Rapid7. It was $5 million in revenue at the time. Yeah. Uh, I left it at 50. It's, it's uh, now over 500. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah. that's been a, a... Which is a huge sort of challenging different stages within that alone, 5 to 50. Yeah. So 5 to 50 was a 10x and you know, learned a ton, foundational experience for me. And I, I'm proud to say that the, um, the person who is running it right now 
um, I hired in to be our first VP of marketing, as someone I'd worked with back at Microsoft, absolute rock star, and he's taken in an even more difficult 10x from uh, 50 to 500 plus. Yeah. Um, uh, and then that led to my second CEO opportunity, which was uh, at Talend um, uh, out in Silicon Valley. Uh, took that from 50 million to 250 million, took it public along the way. That was a fantastic experience as well, and that has led us here to Onfido. Yes. So now we've talked about uh, yours and Onfido's journey. I'd like to talk now just briefly and touch upon the relationship between investors and the companies they invest in. Now, I, I personally think it's really interesting, certainly for investors, to listen more to executives about how they can add value. Uh, and I think actually no one is probably better placed than you to comment on that, having had three different VC-backed boards. So when you reflect on that, when it comes to investors, what, what have you found where they can be consistently most helpful? I think there's a ton of areas that investors can be helpful. Um, the investors that sit on the board um, can help you give their feedback as an, um, as an outside party, saying, hey, I'm hearing this, here's, here's, here's what I got away from this. And you know, feed that back to us and say, you know, I think you're right here, but I, I'm concerned you're not looking hard at, enough at this. So that's, that sort of sounding board is super important to us. We use that as a forcing function internally. Right? So I, I drive a, a strategy day, a, a day-long deep dive on strategy every year. Yeah. So what does that do? Well, that drives our whole internal strategy conversation you know, for months leading up to that. And do you bring investors into that day? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that is an intact conversation with the board. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it ends up being one of the best of the year. But it's, it, that is a, you know, it, everyone inside the company, knowing that they're going to be talking to the board about it, really prepares hard and brings their A game and gives a level of thought and depth to that conversation that, you know, doing your best doing it in, inside, you'll get to 80 or 90% of that. But the board being that sounding board, you know, really takes to another and, level. And just on that, do you think the investors who are on that board, who've, who've been a CEO themselves, provide better content? Or not necessarily, can investors who've just seen a lot of patterns and been on a number of different boards, so, but purely as investors, heck yeah. do, do you see a difference in the content? Oh, heck yeah. I, you know, my view is that I'll, I'll um, even, even frame that a little more broadly. Um, you need to have board members who have been sitting CEOs and preferably, um, yeah. you know, even active CEOs at the time, because they'll bring a, a perspective that, you know, it's cross-functional, looks across all the different pieces that you have. And, you know, they've walked in your shoes. It's so easy to be a critic when you haven't done it before. Uh, you have a different level of empathy and, and you know. I completely agree. And I don't think we get enough of this in earlier stage venture businesses is one of the opinions I formed as a venture partner the last four or five years. I think you see it more in latter stage growth companies. I think they tend to actually get that dynamic. Yeah, totally. And I think, well, what, what happens in a latter stage company is that you end up designing the board because you have, you know, you start filling it out with independence to, you know, solve yeah. for gaps that you might otherwise have. Yeah. And so, you know, for us, you know, what are roles I care about? Well, sitting CEO or, or you know, recent um, CEO that's grown through the stage that you're in, yeah. super valuable. Preferably with domain, but not critical, I would argue. Yeah. Someone who's go-to-market expert, um, super helpful. Um, someone who's a, well, you know, regulatory-wise, you need a, someone who's a financial expert to be your audit chair. Yeah. Um, so you have, there are, you know, when you think about constructing a board, think about what are the, the kind of expertise that you need that, that's going to help you weigh in. I like to have someone strong, deeply technical on my board yeah. that's going to really push us on technical strategy and really push the, you know, are we really thinking through the, uh, the engineering part of the job? And, and what else? Obviously, that, that's very much around the board table and in terms of the strategy. How else can, I mean, yep. money, money matters, but what else can investors do to practically get their weight behind the business? Yep. Um, one that I know TempoCap has been super helpful to is refer customers, right? In, in the early days when the company is, is first getting themselves off the ground, Super helpful to get that early at-bats and early customer traction. Yeah. Um, start spreading the word and telling... Evangelize. Evangelize. You, know, you put the money in, so exactly. you must have liked something. So. Win-win. Exactly. Yeah. Helped get the story yeah. out. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've got a friend who's a CEO who's talking about putting sales targets 
on his investors. <laughs> no, 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 which I thought was really cute. I've done, but, I've done but that. But he said, you know, he, said, he doesn't expect them to close them, but he expects X amount. That they know who they're, the companies they want to speak to. Yep. That gets published, and he expects to get two, two introductions a quarter from each board member. Love I that. Was, Love that. Yeah. So I've, I've done it in a more, I haven't done it quite as formally as that, but I've done it in a more, uh, you know, sort of gamified way. Yeah. Which is, you know, I'll show the scorecard. So and so is winning. I want, don't want to have him run away. Everyone's with competitive. Yeah. Everyone's exactly. competitive. Exactly. So, having talked about the journey and our partnership, I next, you know, the, the meat of today, if you will, the lessons that you've learned along the way. So, I want to start with one that really intrigues me. I, I think it could be quite a tough question in this, but what's been harder for you, Mike, as a CEO? Is it leading across different sectors, you know, from data? infrastructure, software, into, into identity verification. That seems challenging to me, different domains, or is it actually through the different stages? Startup, scale-up, IPO, and beyond. Yeah, so for me, most likely the latter. Um, in, in, but I'm wired a little differently than most people. So I've always been a generalist in, in all of my, you know, every role I had. Yeah. Almost every role I had was in a different sector. Right. The only the only time I sort of doubled down the sector was in data because I worked in SQL Server, and then yeah. you know I took a job two jobs later yeah. in the data space again in data integration, but every other job I mean from you know collaboration software and email exchange and to video conferencing before that to uh, the data world to security I mean so you know jumping sectors was was something I'd done even before I became a CEO, uh, and you know my view. It, it also is not just a personal view, it goes to how I think about hiring as well. My, my perspective is hire athletes that are absolute rock stars at the problem to be solved because domain, you need some domain in the company, you absolutely need some domain expertise in the company. But if you prioritize that, you end up oftentimes getting a B player with domain experience Versus an A player that will learn enough of the domain in six months to outrun. Domain's learnable. Domain yeah. is largely learnable yeah. and transferable. So you need enough because there are yeah. going to be some nuances. So you can't be completely domain free. But in, you know, in terms of prioritizing your hiring, I'd say always start with. And I've lived that myself, right? I can say, look, you know, proof point. I, I really agree. And you made it personal to you there. You said this could be personal to you. But do you think this could also be pretty consistent, actually, across most leaders? My, my instinct is it is. You know, domain is learnable. Whereas actually managing through the stages is more about behavior. It's, it's quite a challenge I found. You know, and I, I think we were talking earlier, I never led as a founder. I was a number two as a founder. And we had this incredibly charismatic leader who could convince people to run through brick walls and jump off a cliff. But he struggled in the scale-up phase, which is where I kind of naturally stepped forward. And it's, it's quite behavioral that. That's harder to learn, I think. Oh, there's, and to me, there's a, there's a ton of things you need to do in the scale-up phase. It's, you know, me coming in from the outside, my first thing in is to assess what the heck is going on and what's, yeah. what's needed here, and then drive a whole bunch of change. So change management ends up being super critical, and yeah. keeping people with you as you're, you know, making some significant changes. But, you know, for me, because remember, everyone has to do all of these things for the first time somewhere. Yeah. They might do them for the first time as a number two or in a larger company and then you know, go to apply in a startup. I didn't do it that way. Hmm. Yeah, I'd seen scale in a, in a big company, but I mean, two and a half billion dollar scale of Microsoft has nothing to do with running a $50 million company in a startup. Hmm. But what, to me, the, the, the most important thing for me as a leader has always been about um, creating this continuous learning approach, individually and for the company. Yeah. It's, it's such a force multiplier um, and you know so for me the, the, the question was always how can I learn to be an expert at whatever problems the company has right now mm. and what are my learning approaches and my you know sources of inspiration and just making sure that I always had that available to me and, you know we talked about the board being one but that can't be the only one so so let me think what, what's the secret then because you've seen this a number of times what's the secret to a smooth handover from founder to CEO and, and in particular, I'm really interested in something you said there about working out what needs to change. But, but equally, there's another side to that, which is what do you want to preserve? Yes. Oh, a thousand percent. So this is, as, as you know from your portfolio, 
This is one of the most important decisions that every board is going to make. Yeah. And it's the highest risk decision that you'll ever make. Um, if you screwed up, you probably lose the company. You don't usually get two um, swings of the bat at this one, or oftentimes, sometimes you do, but you end up with a, in a much, much deteriorated position for a second time. Um, and so to me, the first thing that you need to do is, first off, respect the house that you're in, right? You're, you're walking into someone else's house. The founder built the house. Respect that, right? Because the, the, what I've seen a lot of leaders do is, you know, throw the, the previous person under the bus and, oh, this is broken and this is broken. Well, look, obviously there's issues or they wouldn't have brought you in. Any business is always challenges. Any no brainers. There's plenty of issues in every business I've ever run. But you're not helping anyone and you're certainly not helping yourself by, you know, taking that approach. Do the opposite. Yeah. Build up the founder. Talk about what an incredible job that he did and what an incredible job the company did getting to here. Because, in, and, and build relationships with everyone. Because you're going to start doing some major changes. If you don't have relationships, if, if people don't accept you as being the leader that they need, you're going to fail, period. And you're going to get an organ, tra uh, organ rejection, right? Mm -hmm. And so start by thinking of it that way as a, and spend a good chunk of time on diagnosis. Don't jump in and say, I'm going to do this yeah. and this and this. The first thing I do whenever I join any company, I try to meet as many people as I can. Preferably in person. This last time was yeah, through COVID. That, that was tough. A lot of Zoom meetings. That was totally tough. crazy. Yeah. Um, and it was a year later before I could start meeting people in person. Yeah. But normally, I just spend the first few months back to back to back just meeting people. Listening. Listening. Hi, I'm Mike. Yeah, I'd love to learn, you know, what, where, how did you come here? Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. And what's working? What's not? How can I help? Where would you like to see me spend some time? And just have an open dialogue and learn. And what you'll find is that you'll start seeing patterns pretty quick. And people are, are more often than not, some people are saying, oh my God, it's the new guy and I don't you know, yeah. want to explode. But more often than not, people will, will open up and say, you know, that's great, and, you know, here's what's working, oh, here's not. Potentially even more so to a new guy, maybe. Sometimes. Potentially. Sometimes, but it, it's, it's just so important to, you, what you're doing is you're assessing what's going on in the company, you're assessing people, yeah. and you're also building relationships and treat it, invest it in that way because that is the fulcrum that you're going to be using over the next yeah. you know, couple of years to start making changes. Mm -hmm. And if you screw that up, then you're, you're, you're just walking down the wrong path out of the gate. So, so the, the next thing that makes me think about is, 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 well, you've been chosen by several boards to take venture back businesses to that next level, but what do you look for? What is it that you look for in a company uh, when you're approached by these large VCs to take it on to that next stage? Because I imagine you say no to them as well. So and, and, and maybe the follow-on there is, and what did you see in Onfido? Yeah, 100%, because they, they align directly. But I'm, I'm going to start in a slight different place and, and get to that. Um, as a CEO, or as a someone like, well, I'll put myself where I was a number of years ago when I was looking at trying to get to my first CEO opportunity. Um, what are the first things to think about? Well, number one, you have to be super careful about what you choose. Not only is the company that has potential, we'll talk about what my filter is for that, but also a company that the problems that they have are ones that you specifically can solve. Because mm. that means it's a fit for you and you can help them. Yeah. If you're getting into a company that has potential but you're the wrong fit, you're going to fail and that's disastrous. And here's, it's disastrous for you for in that moment, opportunity cost is a disaster for your career. It's disastrous for the people that bet on you. Yeah. And so think about how you're putting the odds in your favor by doing your homework. You're gonna say, I said no to probably 20 companies before I said yes to one. Um, so important to get right. Um, and really think through hard, is that the right opportunity for you? Because here's the difference, and don't take this the wrong way because you're on the other side of this conversation, but, um, VCs um, are a portfolio play. You have a lot of companies. You need some number of them to be successful and wildly successful and the fund is, is top decile or top quartile fund. As an executive, you're the opposite. You're an anti-portfolio. You're a choice of one. You're gonna spend the next five, 10 years in one company and you have one shot to make that thing successful. Do that. Make sure you get that shot and yeah. nail it. And so with that framework... That's a really good point. Yeah. It's just, it's just the math. And, 
So what, what, what was you saw in Fido then? And how does that resonate with the skill sets that you have? So it's the yeah. right one for you. Yeah, 100%. So let's, let's first talk with, you know, what's the framework and then how does it apply to Onfido? So uh, I'm eager to get to the uh, yeah, yeah, Onfido. Sorry, right? Carry on, carry on. <laughs> sorry, a bit of an engineer. <laughs> uh, so to me, I look for a big market. Because ultimately, if you don't have a big market, you're going to get limited. Yeah. Uh, and I learned this in my first company. It was, the market was security, which is enormous and not well solved in a constant game of cat and mouse. And so, you know, fantastic from that perspective. But the initial entry point into the security market was actually very small. Mm -hmm. it's, it's called vulnerability management. And the, what we learned from that was by the time we got to 40 or 50 million, we were starting to see the edges of the market. The, market, the entire market was probably 200 million. And so you know, even at that scale, we're starting to say, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of greenfield here. We're starting to, you know, be competitive in every deal. It's, it's, this market is smaller, we thought, because, you know, analysts were always saying it's a multi-billion dollar market. Turns out analysts know less about the market than you do. So that left, a, that left an impact. Yes. And so clearly then, and if you take a company public, you're going to spend a lot of time explaining to investors how big the market is, how big the TAM is. And so make sure you find a big opportunity. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, well, what are the competitive dynamics? Um, is it, are there a whole bunch of next-gen, really exciting companies that are well-funded, that are all going after the same nut? Well, that's probably not the best place to look um, because it means that you're going to be in a knife fight for every deal with other smart, well-executing, modern companies. Like The reason why I chose Talon was because, candidly, data integration, we're competing with IBM, Oracle, Jeez, um, Informatica, yeah. Tibco, yeah. a whole bunch of big dinosaurs. I mean, some, some people look at that and say, oh my God, there's big, enormous companies. That's scary. You see opportunities. I look at that and say, oh my gosh, these people can't get out of their own way. Yeah. I love competing with them versus yeah. you know, competing with young, smart, agile companies like us. Man, they're in a knife fight. So the first question is, what are the competitive? The second question is, what are the competitive dynamics? The third question is, do you have a strategy of how you can win? Is there, so we've just said there's a big win here, it's a big market. There's an opportunity because, you know, it, there's no obvious winner. No one has already won and locked up the market. Now the question is, why, why this company? Is there something unique about this that they've built that you can leverage to go and win that? So you have to see all of that lining up. And with Onfido, um, it, was, it was super clear. We're in the digital identity world. The whole world is moving from, you know, on-prem to digital. That transition, it's the biggest mega trend of the entire generation. Cloud is a subset of this, just to be clear, right? This is the mega trend that every single company is going through. Identity is the key that unlocks the door. You can't take advantage of the whole new digital world if you don't solve the identity problem. And it's not well solved. Every single company struggles with this. You talked about companies spending 20 just to do the onboarding. It's 20 different vendors just to do the onboarding problem. Yeah. So massive market. Not well solved. Part of a huge trend in your favor, and a competitive environment that's that you know plays out. And on Fido, fantastic team, great culture, great early traction, and a you know a deep ML expertise, which is I would argue, you know, the key skill set to win in, in this kind of world. So, so just on that, what, what would you say is the most distinctive? Yeah, I thought it was some really interesting lens you got on that actually. Yeah, and you know, to me. You know, what, what both Talent and, and Al Onfido have done is say, the U.S. is such an important market, we're actually going to hire a U.S. leader to help us make that transition. But you need to, at some point, either bet on a, US, a senior U.S.-based person that's going to help you on that journey, I think. Back to lessons. This, is, this section is about the lessons that you've learned. Is there anything that really stands out to you as just one of the hardest lessons that you learned that maybe left a scar that you can't forget? Absolutely. The, the, the board dynamic and board construction is absolutely critical. Just like as a board... The leader that you bring in is vital, and the team that person builds. The team that you have on the board and the dynamics of that board yeah. is going to either make your life easy and be helpful and constructive, or it's going to make your life hell. Um, I learned that the hard way um, and in my first company. And then in my second company, taking that to heart, when I walked in the door, I realized that, man, they were having a battle at the board. Ah. And um, <laughs> I my first board meeting. Um, we had um, literally, I mean, they were, and this turned out to be a budget meeting because uh, it was that time of the year. And so there were like people yelling at us because I'd worked with the team, I'd been on board for a month, we'd put together 
a reasonable model that made You're sense. thinking what the hell have I walked into here? Yeah, and they were you know, calling us idiots, calling individual people on the team idiots, and um, you know, poking saying this number should be twice as big. And I'm saying, guys, stop. Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reset this conversation because um, number one, um, you know, if I'm, I'm here to help, right? Start with, with that. Uh, and if that doesn't make sense, then I'm, any one of you is you know, welcome to take my spot here, right? Um, but more importantly, um, I'm going to redo this because the pattern that you've all seen and lived through over the last couple of years is the team probably came up with a number. You probably beat the crap out of them. You forced them to double the number. And then that felt great for about a, a day or a week. And then it sucked for the next 51 weeks because you missed every number that you pushed them to take. Mm. Right? And I'm going to reset the conversation. I'm going to create a set of goals. I'm going to walk you through the logic of how we got to there. And then we're going to hit and beat these numbers every single month from here on. And you're going to feel better and better about this as the, as the year goes on. So let's reset the tone and talk about this. Now, this thing is based on five assumptions. I'm going to walk you through what the actuals were, what we're going to assume, and, and the improvements, and why we can bet on those improvements. Uh, and that's the model. Right? It's that simple. It's not, it is, budgeting's not actually that hard. So the lesson is to really think about the board constructs. Yes. And because they, when those dynamics are there, they're, they're hard. They're hard. And it's, it's, a, it's a drag. Exactly. And so I'm, and I'll, I, I, sorry, I got so caught up in telling the budget story, I didn't tell the real meat of the story. And so literally, so here we finished the meeting. I had the entire exec team in my office uh, immediately afterwards all saying they're going to quit. Why? Because they're getting yelled at by the board and they're being told they're idiots and they're just being belittled the whole time. And so I was like, guys, come on, calm down. Right? We're... we're I've got this. I literally had to call up every board member and say, you understand that the behavior we saw today was unacceptable, right? We're either going to work together and help build this company, or you're going to find a new CEO to do that with you because I'm not going to go and have you yell at my guys every time. That's just unacceptable. If you want to yell at somebody, yell at me. I'm a big boy. Um, but what can happen is that executives that we you know, spend a lot of time hiring and developing and building, um, get kicked and, and end up frustrated. You understand they all tried to quit today, right? I'm just not going to do that every quarter. How did that go? Did it make the impact? Yes. Yeah. Well, we had to, we, then what we had to do was we had to, there's two other problems there. First off, we had a couple of board members that just had to go. Yeah. Um, they were driving, they had to prove how smart they were and it was just terrible. Um, and that was awful. The other thing was... Um, we, had, we, hadn't, we didn't have a clear chairman. Uh, and so as a result, there wasn't a clear who was going to actually make decisions. So that, that can, you know, contributed to this mess. And so you know, we you know, ended up getting the right person elected chairman, uh, and that simplified. Then he, you know, his job that I could work with him on was go clean up the mess. Look, I need you to get rid of this person, this person. You need to, let's go and you know, jointly build on some other great people that join our board. And you know, start, you know, fixing this this um, you know team dynamic issue, board dynamic issue, and you know, within a few months, it was a dramatically different and better conversation. We're all off to the race together. But learning how bad it could be, made me. I was loaded for bear. You pay attention. To I was this. loaded for bear, and I was like, yeah. not going to deal with that. So, so this, you pay attention to this when you look at your next role. What's yes. the board dynamic? Yes, but you couldn't tell. I, that wasn't obvious to me from the outside, but in the yeah. first meeting, I'm like, yeah. you know, aha. Yeah. Right. And I've seen it. I've seen, you know, I've seen all sorts of boards in, in my time and I've seen some dreadful behavioral boards. And actually the impact, not just on the executives, but just the quality of the board meeting yeah. can be profound. It's, 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 it, it drags everyone down and it, it yeah. and it's conversely pulls everyone up. When you have a board that's really working like the board meeting we just had today, yeah. fabulous. Yeah. Had great feedback. The team was energized after it. The board had a bunch of great feedback. I was like, wow, right? that's how a board should work. Okay, so very topical question. Um, as a CEO, I'm really relevant for you because as a CEO who joined right in the middle of the pandemic, who didn't get to meet many of his colleagues for, for a number of months, what have you learned about building relationships and also, I suppose, thinking more macro, building, a, building and sustaining a strong culture in a work-from-home environment? What are your thoughts on that? We are all, as an industry, trying to figure that all out together. Yeah. Because you know, we had, you know, in our case, 18 months, two years, where we were truly just working from home. And now we're in a, in a um, hybrid scenario because 
we hired a whole bunch of people in all kinds of different places. So it's not like we're ever going to be back to a full in-office culture ever again. And so this is so important to get right. Um, what, what I ended up doing when I first came in was spend a lot of time just on Zoom, just you know, meeting as many people as I can and just listening and trying to understand, well, what is the culture? Because everyone talked about how the, the Onfito culture was, was so powerful and so it was, it, was, it was the reason why they joined, it's the reason why they stayed. And I was like, wow. So this is something we need to make sure we don't screw up. And now how can we make sure that we keep reinforcing that when people are remote? Because it, it's, a lot of that is based on relationships and daily interactions that you're not getting. You're not, there's no hanging around and going out to lunch and grabbing a pint in the pub afterwards. All that stuff just doesn't exist when you're on Zoom. And so, and for me, it's been doubly hard because, you know, I'm coming in from the outside and I'm, I'm coming in from the U.S. And so, you know, even in the best of times now that we're, we're open, you know, I only see the team for a week a month, you know, best case. And so um, what we've been trying to do is to look for ways to, to amplify that. And so we have our weekly uh, town halls. We call them on Fridays because we're on feed up and we do them on Fridays. And... Um, we, uh, we look for uh, ways to reinforce. Every, every month we'll, um, we'll recognize some culture winners and people that are really living and breathing our Onfito culture um, values. And so that's a way for us to keep reinforcing. Look what Sue's doing. Look what Dave's doing. And you know, just, really- Just underlining the behavior. Yeah, exactly, underlining behavior. And it does, it does two incredible things. First off, it allows you to, you know, really create some visibility for your leaders that are stepping up. And that's such a, a great thing in its own, that recognition. Yeah. But number two, the, what you're doing is you're not just talking about the what they did. You're talking about the how and the behaviors. Um, and that, you know, well, they're, they're, you know, for us, one of our um, values is learn things, share things. Someone who's, doing, someone who's you know, really deeply uh, solving customer problems. We call that create customer buzz. Um, so, you know, people that are, are, you know, really living and breathing those values and just, you know, going telling those stories. I think it's so important. And, and you're right. You're not alone. This is something everyone is wrestling with. And I think particularly when you've got a lot of new starters, I think there's maintaining a culture over Zoom when you all know each other is one thing. But I think Onfido will definitely have this dynamic where you're hiring huge numbers of new starters in different offices. It's a real challenge. Half the company in the 18 months I've been here wasn't here when I started, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. And now I'd like to turn to the future. Uh, the, task, the past teaches us a lot if we're willing to face up to it. But growth stories are really about the what next, about the future. So I'd love just to explore a little bit more. You teased out some stuff earlier when we were asking questions about your journey, about Onfido's journey, but what are you most excited about when you think about the next two years for Onfido? What really stands out? You know, we are in the middle of the biggest mega trend in the world, right? The world's moving to digital. In order to do that, you need to have digital identity that connects to your real identity, right? We are in the middle of that thing. And for us, what we're, our mission is to simplify identity for our customers. That whole situation of, geez, I need 20 vendors for the onboarding. I need another dozen for the rest of the identity lifecycle. That's crazy, right? Who wants to deal with that hairball? Let's help simplify. And let's help our customers create open, inclusive relationships with their customers, with their end users, right? That's what we do. Uh, where identity is something that now that they can leverage into this new digital world. Um, there's, there's so much for us. We just la launched our new, um, uh, our, our new platform. Uh, that just massively increases our value to our customers, gives them a much simpler journey, and you know, it gives us so many more opportunities to help solve problems for them. That's a much bigger market for us to sell to. Um, we have, for us, we have another couple of really important steps that we want to take over the uh, next couple of years that, you know, really extends that to solve more of that overall life cycle problem. Uh, and does that take you outside of financial services where you've been really strong? Does this 
This sounds like that can apply more broadly to many, many businesses. Oh, for sure, for sure. And so financial services is absolutely a big market for us and will always be. But yeah, this digital identity is a problem that applies it's, to every company. Everywhere. Every company yeah. that has customers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are the, you talked there about the trend to digital and you talked earlier about the trend to, uh, to cloud. What, what are the other big trends globally that you think are really relevant for Onfido and your growth story? Boy, um, you know, I'd say big trend right now is um, the, um, you know, more and more uh, digital currencies. Yeah. Right? That's a clearly, I would say, a, a freight train that's, that's you yeah. know, it goes up and down a hill, uh, but the hill's tilted up pretty strongly, right? And so, you know, that's a key part of the future. And that means that there's a whole lot of finance that's going to be reinvented and replumbed to work in the digital yeah. identity world. And particularly as regulation comes more and more to that market, I think identity is going to be right at the heart of that. Yep, totally. And, and you know, portable digital identity, so digital credentials. Right now, identity, you know, traditionally into now has been, you know, this government thing that you have a piece of plastic typically in your wallet yeah. uh, that proves who you are. And now we help you translate that into the digital world, but you know, pretty soon your driver's license, your passport is going to be something digital that shows up, you know, in your phone to start with. And, you know, you'll probably also still have a piece of plastic, but over time that goes away and it only is a digital thing. So helping customers through that transition is going to be a super exciting journey. So there's going to be, there's so much change coming right now that we can help our customers with. Yeah. That's opportunity, right? That's exciting. And it's broad. It's broad. It's broad within the identity life cycle, but also moving across more and more sectors. That's what really stands out to me. And in every country around the world. Yeah. This, this, yeah. this is one of the biggest and hardest problems out there for sure. That's, yeah. that's why I came, this is why I came. And finally, I, I don't think we can also, in the current market environment, not mention just the, the toughness at the moment in public markets for technology and growth. As we, we sit here in June, 2022, um, I know people might watch this in the future. How do you see that impacting technology and potentially Enfido's growth story? Yeah, so what we're seeing right now is um, a, and this is a little bit different in different countries around the world, but um, we, I'd say we, we more or less are talking ourselves into a slowdown, mm. right? Because we saw um, inflation rise due to you know, massive amounts of stimulus spend uh, that went on in, in a couple of different countries. Supply shock as well. Yeah, it's a supply, and the supply shock at the same time. So you have too much demand, chasing too little supply, that, that drove a lot of inflation. So now we're seeing, um, you know, belt tightening and interest rate raising and so on. That drove a correction in the public market. And so all of that has people saying, oh my gosh, you know, I should be rethinking my you know, growth versus profitability ratios and, you know, dialing things back and, and tightening belts. But what's, what's puzzling about this to me in, in that environment is if you look at the actual core economic underpinnings, they're actually incredibly healthy, right? We're at full employment, right? We're, the unemployment rate is vanishingly low right now. Um, the, you know, companies in this most recent quarter, by and large, are beating their numbers. Now, everyone's being cautious about this going forward because of this sort of talking down effect that's going on. Mm -hmm. And so what, what you know, all of us are looking to do is to say, how can we be um, deliberate about this and be prudent? So we're positioning ourselves to grow, but we have less visibility because everyone's talking themselves off the cliff right now. Yeah. And so that's the, 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 the question of, of that we're all trying to find the right balance of, the right level of prudence, where we're still making the right growth investments, but we're not, if the world truly does slow down, as seems likely and plausible right now, that we're not going to, you know, overbuild and end up, you know, spending way too much money and, and being um, upside down in, in six or 12 months. So, so outside of, you know, potentially, you know, some form of potential recession, I think you're right, by the way, we might be talking ourselves into it. You know, if inflation settles down, the rest of the economic factors are, are pretty strong. Um, what, what other challenges do you see when you think about um, Onfido, and obviously be hugely excited about the, the new platform, what other challenges do you see in terms of delivering growth for Onfido? You know, for us, the, the most important thing to get, so I'm, I'm going to, um, 
I'm going to answer this in a, in a, in a probably a higher level way than you meant to ask the question, but it's, it's yeah. the way I think about every business. I think it's, there's an important uh, lesson sitting here. The most important thing to get right in any company is get the team right. right? If you do that and, and have the right culture around that, the force multiplier of a team that works together, cheers each other on, supports each other, wins together, that's 75% of the game right there. The next part is the chessboard. What's going on in the market? What are customers looking for? What are competitors doing? What are the set of plays that you're going to do of how are you going to win? And the last part is probably the least uh, glamorous part of all of it, but it's the part that where we all end up getting paid in the end is execution, right? How do you, you know, have the right uh, set of system processes where you can create a set of commitments, make it super crystal clear to everyone how their commitments roll into their teams and into the companies and how that leads into our future, uh, and you know, have the right kind of rhythm to understand and course correct on a you know daily, weekly, monthly basis. If you do those three things well, you can be successful. And right now, we're you know finishing the team. We're um, you know continuing to work on reinforcing the culture as you talked about. Um, we're going through a market with massive change. Cre- change is opportunity if you solve the strategy problem. So we're doing a lot of strategy work right now, and we're continuing to work on just better and better execution. Is our demand engine working and consistently scaling the way it needs to be? Is our you know sales execution and, and qualification and forecasting? These are this is the nitty gritty part of of growing and scaling companies. That last part. Yeah. Um, so, but do it in that order. If you do it that one. The team is going to help you build a strategy, and that's going to inform you know how you execute. Mike, thank you, thank you for sharing those insights. That's you know what's been a, a staggering career. Um, we at Tebacap are really excited to be with you and the rest of the team. Uh, for the next part of the journey. If you want to find out more about Mike and Onfido, please check out their LinkedIn page and their websites. Tempercat Growth Stories will be back uh, with a new growth story from another one of our CEOs. In the meantime, also follow us on LinkedIn and check out the website for our newsletter. Thank you. been listening to TemperCap Growth Stories, a Maledra digital production. Find out more about TemperCap at tempercap.com and subscribe to the TemperCap Growth Stories podcast for more fascinating interviews with tech leaders.